The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John composed his Gospel to provide reasons of saving faith proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written so that you may believe. Have you ever um, spent a long time telling somebody something and maybe even going back and following up and giving them the same information just to make sure they got it accurately and then only to find out a few hours Maybe even a few minutes later, they come back and say, now, what did you say? You're like, seriously? I just told you what I said. Now, if you're a parent, you've experienced this a lot, right? Where you have repeatedly told your child or your children something they should not do. You've told them again. You've told them multiple times, different contexts, different settings. And then they conveniently forget what you've told them. And that's frustrating, right? Because you've told someone something, and yet they don't remember. Well, here we see Jesus in our study of the Gospel of John repeatedly, continually telling the Jews, the people around him, not just always the Jews, others, about who he is, who has sent him, and why he is here. And yet they struggle to see the truth of what he has said and who he is. And once again, that's right, once again, we have another encounter with Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. This is going to be the last encounter in the Gospel of John that we're going to see with Jesus and those religious leaders until Jesus returns several months later for Passover, for the Passion Week. And I'll have to say right up front that what we're looking at today, the passage, has profound doctrinal impact on what we believe about Jesus and specifically what we believe about salvation. And we're going to see a challenge from those Jewish leaders about Jesus' messiahship. We're going to also see a challenge about, from those Jewish leaders about Jesus' authority. But all the while, we're going to see Jesus teaching, challenging them to believe. And that's really our outline. The, the challenge to his messiahship, the challenge to his authority, and the challenge from Jesus to believe. So let Roman numeral one. And, and by the way, the, God, uh, the apostle John gives us all the context we really need for our study this morning. So we're going we're gonna to use his own context in, in studying the passage. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Roman number one is the challenge of Messiahship. And we're going to see in letter A the setup. And this really is the context. So we'll spend a few minutes looking at these first few verses. Let's read them. And I'll read each section as we get to it instead of reading it all at once. Verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now between verses 21 and 22, there's about three months that have passed. And although the subject matter kind of seems like it should go together, I mean, we're reading chapter 10. He's talking about the good shepherd and the sheep. And now we're also still talking about sheep. Uh, it, It must be the same same setting, but it's not. John makes it very clear that there is a, there is a, 
a time break here between 21 and 22, and he says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication. Now, what the time break is, is about three months because we were in the Feast of Tabernacles in verse 21 in the fall, and now we're in the winter in the Feast of Dedication. And so at least two, maybe perhaps three months have passed since we last heard Jesus teaching about being the good shepherd. Now, the Feast of Dedication, what do we know about that? Well, it's also known as Hanukkah, Festival of Lights, which, by the way, we are in the middle of Hanukkah. Did anybody know that? Yeah, no, a few of you did. Yeah, this, I think, is the next to the last day. We didn't plan to have a message <laughs> that lined up, that talked about Hanukkah and, and lined up, but, but that's why Jesus was on the Temple Mount. It was the Feast of Dedications, or, or Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. And, and this is still celebrated by many Jews today. What is this? It was a celebration of the cleansing and rededication of the Temple after three years of desecration. Now, I'm going to go into a lot more detail about this Feast of Dedication in Beyond the Notes this week. So if you have an interest in wanting to know the history, how, how did Hanukkah come about? How did this Feast of Dedication? Jesus obviously was participating in this. It was important. He was there at the temple. We'll talk a little bit more about that during the Beyond the Notes. We also get some more context. He says it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so picture in your minds, here's Jesus walking along. He's not teaching. He's not preaching. Maybe he was walking to teach or walking from teaching, but he's walking along in the, the colonnade of Solomon. Now, what is the colonnade of Solomon? Well, on the screen, you see a, a, a model of the Temple Mount, and you see that, that large area that made up the Temple Mount. In the middle of that you see the temple, right? You see the temple right in the middle of the temple mount. The temple is facing east. And that eastern wall, the wall that is closest to us, that would be where the colonnade of Solomon or Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico would be located, that one. Now, what did that look like? I, I, I found a picture of something that would have been, that would have looked something like this. It would have had those tall columns. It would have been open to the air, but it would have had a roof over it. And that might have been why Jesus was there, was there because it, it refers to it was winter. And that had more than a seasonal implication. It had more of a, it was probably raining, maybe even storming. And that was probably why Jesus was there. Now we pick up the next bit of our context in verse 24. It says, so the Jews gathered around him. Now, got to understand what's going on. Here, Jesus, and picture in your mind, Jesus walking through perhaps a fairly crowded uh, a portico there, and almost out of nowhere it appears that these Jews, and, and typically when John refused to the Jews, he's referring to the Jewish religious leaders. Not always, but usually. And specifically, we can tell in this instance, he's referring to the Jewish leaders. They come out of nowhere, and they surround him. And that same phrase, surround him, is used in Revelation chapter 20, and it's referring to a military siege. Basically, they ambushed him. They, they, they saw him coming, and they said, this is our chance, and they jumped out, and they surrounded him where he had nowhere to go. And I don't know if it was five of them, 10 of them, I don't know how many, but they, they surrounded him, so he was frozen. He was there in his tracks. And so you can tell right off the bat that their intent is not, hey, how you doing, Jesus, having a good day? No, they had something else on their mind. And look at what they ask as soon as they surround him. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Their goal in this ambush was to trap Jesus. Because if they could get him to admit and to claim that he was the Messiah, they'd have all the information they needed to arrest him. 
And so the goal was to trap him. It was not to, to find out more information, to learn. Maybe we can grow in our understanding of who Jesus No, their goal was entrapment here. That's why we see this military ambush-like approach and then the question. So the, 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 the stage is set with the confrontation here. Letter B, the false sheep. We continue on. It says, Jesus answered them. And they asked the question, and so Jesus answered them. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, I told you, I told you. And this was in response to their question of his Messiahship. And so the question is, had Jesus really told them? Well, yes and no. <laughs> and no, he had not explicitly used that phrase, I am the Messiah, to these Jewish religious leaders. In fact, among the Jews, he did not use that title. Among his disciples in private, we even see him with the Samaritan woman at the well, he uses that title. But with the Jews in public, he had not used that title. Why do you think that? Well, there was such a, a connotation with that word Messiah. It was a very politically charged and militarily charged word. And why? Because they thought that the Messiah would be the one that would take care of this Roman oppression and Roman rule that the Jews had been living under. And so it had that kind of connotation, this popular misunderstanding. So therefore, Jesus wasn't going to use that word because of the misunderstanding of that word. But their desire was to trap him. Now, Jesus, while not using the word Messiah, pretty much everything he said and everything he did pointed in the direction that, yes, he was, in fact, the Messiah. That's why he said, I told you. And I did a little looking back in our study of John, and I was curious, what are some of the things that Jesus has said very plainly in public? And here's just a short, abbreviated version of things he told them. I told you I came from heaven, found in John 3. I told you whoever believes in me has eternal life. I told you I am the son of God. I told you I am the bread of life. I told you I am the light of the world. I told you I am sent from God. I told you I am the son of man. I told you I am the door. And last week we looked at Jesus telling them, I told you I am the great shepherd. Jesus told them very clearly. And he showed them very clearly that, yes, in fact, he was the Messiah, the Christ. But look at verse 25. I told you, and what? You do not believe. You do not believe. That word believe is found 98 times in John's gospel. It's a pretty important word. It's a pretty important theme. And he's going to dive into that a little bit right here. He uses this phrase twice in verse 25 and 26. In 25, he's just saying, I told you, but yet you did not believe all the things I clearly said and did that would have shown and proved that I am, in fact, the Messiah. But the second time he uses that in the next verse, look at verse 26. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So the second time he uses it, he's giving the reason or the cause for their unbelief. And we'll often say this backwards. We'll say, oh, they are not his sheep because they didn't believe. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? He says they didn't believe. Why? Because they were not his sheep. They don't believe in him because they are not his sheep. You see, the Bible teaches that man's, our problem is not just that we don't believe and don't turn from our sin. No, our problem is that because of our sin, that we are spiritually dead, unable to do anything for our salvation. 
Unbelief is not the cause of man's separation from God, but it's the result of man's separation from God. You see, these Jewish leaders did not believe because their nature was hardened, darkened by sin. They were false sheep. In fact, Jesus is, Jesus in the last part of, or the first part of verse 10, what we looked at last week, he said, you're not the shepherds over Israel. And now he's saying, not only are you not the shepherds over Israel, you're not even his sheep. That's pretty harsh words. Remember, they said at the beginning, tell us plainly. <laughs> I don't think they had any idea how clear he was going to be. No, you're not a shepherd. No, you're not even among the sheep of Israel. The problem, and this is on your outline, because of our sin, we can do nothing for our own salvation. Because of our sin, we can do nothing for our own salvation. It is God through his son Jesus that brings salvation. And we'll see that in just a little bit when we get to the good news here. Let her see the true sheep, the true sheep. Verse 27, my sheep Now, he's just said this group was not part of his sheep, but now he says, my sheep. And so he's delineating the difference here. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And one of the things that stands out, and this is, this is the section in our passage that has such a profound impact on what we believe about Jesus and especially our salvation, right? And so we want to we pay careful attention. And one of the things that stands out is this phrase, I give, because we can see really at least three things that Jesus gives to his sheep, the true sheep in this section as we go through it. The first one perhaps is the one that just jumps off the page in verse 28 when he says, I give them eternal life. So the first thing that Jesus gives is eternal life. Our eternal life is given to us by Jesus. You probably know this. Our salvation is not earned. It's not bought. It's not worked for. It's not bargained for. It comes to us as sinners, as undeserving as we are, as a free gift from God. Amen? That comes from God as a free gift that we do not deserve it. And a result of our eternal life, he says in the same passage, is that we will never perish. Does that mean we won't die? Physically, yes, we will die. We all will die. But he's talking about our soul. The essence of who we are will live for eternity in his presence. And what's awesome about that is is we get so focused on the physical, especially this time of year sometimes, right? We can get caught up in, in all the trappings of Christmas and, and all the, maybe even the gifts and the food and all that. And while there's nothing really wrong with any of that, that can become our focus so easily. Instead of focusing on what really matters for eternity. And, and God has really challenged me this season, coming into this. And, and as, I'm, as I'm thinking about this passage right here, the focus that Jesus gives us eternal life, that needs to be what I focus on because my eternal life, while it does focus on eternity and, 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 and what that will be like and the glory that is involved in that, eternal life begins right now, right? From the moment we turn from our sin and put our trust in Christ and him alone, eternity begins for the child of God. In that moment, we move from death to life. And that happens by God's sovereign grace and mercy. And so we are experiencing eternity for those of us in Christ right now. But yet we live like we're focusing on the temporal things more than eternity. 
The second thing that Jesus gives, not only is eternal life, is eternal security. Look what he says, the last part of verse 28, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. How many of you love that part of that verse? (laughs) Isn't that awesome? That no one will snatch them out of my hand. A hold so strong, he says that nothing can snatch him. And I have this vision of Jesus holding on to me with this grip that cannot let go. While I'm trying to hold on myself, but I, I, I sometimes fail. I sometimes let go, but Jesus holding tightly to me. And what's awesome about this is that my salvation, your salvation for the true sheep of God, there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation and receive our salvation just like there's nothing we can do to lose our salvation. Amen? There's nothing we can do, either good or bad, that's going to cause us to lose our salvation. I can't understand why so many Christians are taught and and receive that and believe that they can lose their salvation, that there's some bar they have to keep to keep their salvation. What a life that would be here for the true believer in Christ. And I say that very carefully for the true believer in Christ, there's nothing we can do to lose our salvation. So Jesus gives us eternal life. Jesus gives us eternal security, but he also gives us eternal relationship. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. What a beautiful picture of a very intimate relationship between the great shepherd and his sheep. And for those of us in Christ, we recognize the voice of God through the word of God and we follow him and obey him by faith. And this relationship is transformational because as I follow Jesus, The more I'm following Jesus and the closer I am to Jesus, the more I'm becoming like Jesus. That's what I mean by transformational. It's not something that we just sit there and enjoy and, oh, I just hear the voice of God and isn't it sweet? No, we are are becoming more and more like him through our study of the word of God, through our obedience of the word of God and following what God is teaching us. So I asked this question this morning and it's not on your outline, but I think it's a real important question for all of us to, to consider. Are you among Jesus' sheep. Because you see, there was a delineation here between those Jewish leaders when he said, you are not among my sheep, but now he's talking about a group that is part of his sheep. So the question is, are you part of his sheep? And I'll start with this question. I'm gonna ask three questions that we can help maybe evaluate, are we among his sheep? The first one is, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? And I'm not talking about an intellectual consent The demons do that. No, I'm talking about the type of belief that says I'm willing to put my life, my very life into his hands. That I realize that I am a sinner, that I have no chance at eternal life on my own, but yet I'm willing to put my faith and trust, not in what I can do in my own works, but only in what Christ has done for me. Ryan talked about it before one of the songs. Christ Jesus coming into this world, living a sinless life, going to the cross, dying on that cross, paying the sin penalty that you and I deserve as sinners. And I'm willing to put my faith and trust in that. That's the kind of belief that we're talking about for those that are among his sheep. And by the way, if he's given you eyes and ears to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and you do recognize yourself as a sinner in need of a savior, my prayer for you this morning is that you would repent of your sin and place your faith in him and him alone for salvation, not in what you can do. The second question, do you hear his voice? And I don't mean an audible voice. I mean, do you hear 
the voice of God through the word of God. You have a hunger and a thirst more for this book than anything else in the world. You begin to orient your entire life around his teachings. That's what we mean by hearing his voice, that this word, this book becomes the focus and who you're going to listen to. And the third question is, do you follow him? He says, they will know me and they will follow me. And notice that our life is now should be focused on following the shepherd, Jesus, and not our own desires. You see, salvation will change your priorities. Your preferences, the things that you think are important will no longer be important. You'll take on God's priorities in your life. And that's who you want to follow. So literally, your life is reoriented. Instead of following what you think is important, you're following the Savior. The truth is, and this is on your outline, Jesus' sheep are secure. Why? Because he gives them eternal life. Amen. Amen. Number two, Roman numeral two, the challenge of authority. We're going to look at Jesus' appeal in several different areas. But letter A, we see Jesus' appeal to his deity. Verse 30 says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus ends his teaching on the security of his sheep by telling them that the authority that I, I have to make that statement is that I and the Father are one. Now, they didn't like that. In fact, they start, we see again, they start picking up stones. Was Jesus claiming to be God in this moment? Absolutely. He was not saying, you know, well, God and I are on the same page. God and I have the same purpose statement. Hey, I align with what God's doing. No, he's claiming deity in this moment. He's claiming to have the same nature and essence of God the Father. This is why they got so mad. This is why they started picking up stones once again to try to kill Jesus, to try to take justice into their own hands. By the way, this is the fourth time they've tried to kill Jesus. That's why I love how John writes in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. By the way, if anyone ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God, have you ever heard that before? That no, Jesus, he never claimed to be God. Go to just this one verse and say, okay, if he said that, why in the world did they get so mad at him if he wasn't claiming to be God? In fact, we'll see they accuse him of blasphemy in just a minute in one of the verses we're going to look at. No, Jesus is claiming in this moment to be God, and he's made them mad. So again, picture in your mind, we've got Jesus surrounded by, by, these, uh, by these religious leaders, and he's just been talking about the fact that they're not a, you know, among his sheep, and, and, and then describing who his sheep are and, and, and the things he's given them, eternal life, eternal security, eternal relationship. And then he says, I and the Father are one, and they get mad, and they're grabbing stones. They are grabbing So have that in your mind, and we get to verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And I'm going to stop right there because I love how Jesus responds here because I don't think any way in the world I could respond like this, right? Because there's a group of people that are really mad at me that are grabbing stones with the intent of throwing them at me. And so I don't know if my first thought is going to be to run as fast as I can to see if I can get out of the, 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 the range of their stone-throwing ability. You know, maybe there were some, some older Jewish leaders that couldn't throw it very far. So I'm going to run. Or I'm going to find somebody in the crowd that's larger than me, and I'm going to hide behind them. Or maybe for some of you that are a little bolder, you're reaching for stones yourself. Like, I can defend myself against these guys. 
Or at least maybe start yelling at him and saying, are you crazy? Why are you doing this? This is against the law. But that's not what Jesus does. He's so calm. He says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? He asked him, okay, you want to stone me, so which of my good works are you going to stone me? He's saying, shouldn't you judge my claims based on what I've actually done or not done? I mean, that's a good point, right? If I'm claiming to be God and my works prove that, well, which of my works you know, are you going to show that uh, weren't true or false? So the Lord's question put them in an awkward position of posing his very popular works because his healing, healings are what had made him so popular. I mean, he'd healed people. He'd done other miracles. He'd, you know, uh, taken the demon out of a demon-possessed person. Uh, he fed the multitudes that were hungry with just a few fishes and loaves. And so it put them in a very awkward, awkward position. So they say, well, <laughs> look at verse 33. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you. Nope, we're not going after you for that. <laughs> Wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. No, we're going after you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. The truth is, Jesus' works did prove his deity, but they couldn't see that. They could not see that. And so they took what, what he said, I and the Father are one, and said, that's blasphemy. You're claiming to be God. I love, it. I love how they put their charge of blasphemy. And really for us, the irony here is unmistakable. Look what it says at the end of verse 33. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Being a man, make yourself God. <laughs> The opposite is true, right? He is God, the eternal God, and he made himself man. That's the incarnation. That's what we're getting ready to celebrate here at Christmas. But yet they had it backwards. They thought he was a man trying to make himself God. Let her see Jesus' appeal to the law. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Now this one's a little harder to understand, but here we see Jesus going all Jewish rabbi mode on him. And he's going to begin to reason with them as rabbis would reason and debate and argue. Remember, they are accusing him of blasphemy and that's based on Leviticus chapter 24. So Jesus quotes portion of Psalm 82. And, and in this psalm, it acknowledges that judges or rulers of ancient Israel ruled with God's authority. These little g gods were human beings fulfilling a holy task. But the point of that psalm is not to prove, not to exalt these human leaders, rather it's really to condemn them. And so let's take a look at uh, Psalm 82 verse 6. And this is what Jesus is quoting here. You are God's little g, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So the point in quoting this verse is not for Jesus to prove his deity. No, the point is to show that his accusers lack the biblical basis and knowledge, really, to accuse him and charge him of blasphemy. You see, the Bible uses the word God, little g, in this instance, referring to certain mortal men then how could it be blasphemous for Jesus, the true son of God, to use that term as well? He's arguing from a lesser to a greater, which would have been very common for those Jews to experience. Letter D, Jesus now appeals to believe. I am not doing the work of my father, then do not believe me. 
But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Here's what he's saying in these verses. Look at the evidence of my life. Look at the works. And if, and if you believe the works, then believe in me. Now, if my works are, are phony, if they're fake, then no, don't believe in me. But if my works are genuine, and they were, then believe in me. See, they struggled. They still had those blinders on. And this has been John's argument from the very beginning of his gospel. John chapter 20, verse 31 is part of that verse we quote at the beginning of every message so that you may believe. But I wanted to look at the, the whole verse because John's purpose is to show that Jesus Christ, his words and his works, so that you may believe. Read this with me. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Look at my works. Listen to my words. So that you may believe. And that was the challenge for these Jewish leaders, and it's the challenge for all of us here, especially if you're not a believer in Jesus. Who else could turn water into wine and raise the sick and lame, feed the multitude with just a few loaves and fishes, give sight to the blind, raise the dead to life? Roman numeral three, the challenge to belief. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. We saw in verse 41 that even though they were trying to arrest him, he somehow just almost magically disappeared, got away. And then we have this big break here in, in, in scenery, a big change in location. He goes from being in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, now across the Jordan to the Prean wilderness, to the place where John the Baptist had been preaching and baptizing. And so it's kind of interesting, almost a full circle moment here for Jesus to return to the place where he himself was baptized by John the Baptist at the beginning of his public ministry. But notice the contrast, because in Jerusalem, Jesus' message was being rejected over and over. I told you, but they did not believe. Now, all of a sudden, his teaching ministry there in the Prean wilderness, it says that many believed. And remember John's purpose for writing this gospel. We just looked at it, that, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And here we see Jesus' teaching where John proclaimed when he first saw Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God, who what? who takes away the sins of the world. That's the description of the coming Messiah. And now Jesus is back there. And those people had heard John's message and they had believed John's message. And now they believed Jesus' message. And many believed. The question today is, who do you say Jesus is? Jesus has told us exactly who he is, both through his words and his works. He could say to us in this room, I told you. Just like he did those Jewish leaders. I told you, I told you who I am, who sent me, and why I'm here. The question is, how are you going to respond? Are you going to respond to him as Savior and Lord? And for those of us in Christ, what an amazing promise we have in this passage when we're told that our salvation is held in both Jesus' hand and in the hand of God himself that our salvation is secure. What a great promise to leave here this morning knowing that there's nothing we can do that will cause us to lose our salvation, that Jesus and God could lose their grip on his sheep.